Welcome to episode four of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcasts, brought to you by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode four, A Fat Lot of Good. If you can remember back to the first episode of this series, the one where we had a dinner party and followed the food all the way through the digestive system, I started it off by talking about a problem that we, the general public, face in learning anything useful about nutrition. The problem of over-information. There are so many studies, so many articles and books and systems and self-proclaimed experts out there that it's really difficult to know what to pay attention to when you're deciding what to eat. A fundamental part of that problem is that there's a whole vocabulary of technical terms out there related to nutrition that most of us use every day without really understanding what they exactly mean. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine a few weeks ago that I thought summed this up pretty well. In it, two young women are driving in a convertible, and one of them says to the other, I have no idea what gluten is either, but I'm avoiding it just to be safe. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone else. I'm not a scientist. And before I started doing the research and conducting the interviews for this series, I had no idea that carbohydrates were made of sugars, or that a calorie is a unit of heat. We'll get to gluten sometime in the future. But today, and in the next episode, we're going to dive further into two of the most fertile sources of poorly understood nutritional terms, fats and sugars. In the last episode of this series, we learned about energy, Specifically, how our bodies burn fat and sugar in order to produce a substance called ATP, which we then use to keep ourselves running, keep our muscles moving, our hearts beating, and our brains thinking. But like I said at the end, not all fats and not all sugars are the same. And there are some really important differences in how we use them in our body, and also how we use them in food, in cooking and eating. Today, we're going to start by talking about the different kinds of fat. And I hope, along the way, that we'll actually come away with working understandings of some of the terms that seem to be plastered on every other label at every supermarket in the country, but that I doubt one in a hundred of us could accurately define. Cholesterol, saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, trans fat, hydrogenated oils, and on and on. To begin with, every time we eat a food containing fat, which, to some degree or other, is just about everything we eat, we're eating a mixture of three distinct kinds of fats that are always found together. To explain, here's someone I hope you remember from the energy episode, Dr. Elizabeth Parks, Associate Professor of Clinical Nutrition at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. You have phospholipids, you have triglycerides, and you have cholesterol esters, and those are all present in foods that we eat. Uh, and they have different functions in the body. They come in together in food, and then different enzymes from the pancreas and the bile break them down in the intestine, but they're absorbed all together because they've come in in a mixed food. Take meat, for instance. The phospholipid is the membrane that makes up the cells. The triglyceride is the marbling that's between, between the, the strands, the fat, and the cholesterol ester is inside the cells. Of those three, let's start with triglycerides, because there's a much larger quantity of them than the other two in the food that we eat. And if you've been following this series, they're the ones you already know something about. They're the only one of those three that we burn for fuel, as we described in the last episode. 
Each triglyceride is made of three individual molecules called fatty acids, attached to a kind of backbone made of a substance called glycerol. And each fatty acid can be one of three types. Each of those fatty acids can be a saturated fatty acid, it could be a polyunsaturated, or a monounsaturated fatty acids, and they're random, right? So. Uh, in a triglyceride, you could have one polyunsaturated fatty acid, one monounsaturated, and one saturated. And when you eat it, the triglyceride comes in, and those, free, those fatty acids get broken off to be absorbed. To understand the difference between saturated and unsaturated fatty acids, picture a chain of individual atoms, one after another in a row. In this case, carbon atoms. You can picture each carbon as a ball, with four arms sticking out in four different directions. Now, there's a chemical rule that each of those arms has to hold hands with something, some other atom. In this case, each carbon is using two of its arms to hold hands with each of the carbons on either side, making our chain. And its other two hands are each holding an atom of hydrogen, one above the chain and one below. This is a saturated fatty acid. Here's someone else I hope you remember, Maudine Nelson from the Institute of Human Nutrition at Columbia University Medical Center. And now, if you have these chains hooked together in a nice solid way, those would be called saturated fats, where the carbon is very tightly bound to the carbon next to it, and above and below, it's very nicely bound to a hydrogen. Hydrogen above, hydrogen below. And that's a nice solid sucker. I mean, they don't break. <laughs> That would be a saturated fat. And saturated fats are hardy. You can get ultraviolet light and they don't break apart. You can bring in humidity, moisture, um, heat, and they're hardy. They really hang on well. So nature has uh, created more than one variety of fat. So the second kind is called monounsaturated fat, where you still have this chain of carbons that are very tightly connected to the carbons on either side, it's like their left hand is holding the carbon, their right hand is holding a carbon. But instead of having a hydrogen at the above it and below it, at one place, hence the prefix mono, along the chain, the carbons are not bound to a hydrogen on the top and the bottom. So Mother Nature made a rule where carbons have to bind four places. They have to hold on four ways. So now instead of having a hydrogen at the top and a hydrogen at the bottom, that's two bonds, and a carbon to the left and a carbon to the right, that adds up to two more or four. Now the carbon next to it will have a double bond so that you have the four bonds in place. And the double bond sounds stronger because you have two bonds between the two carbons, but in fact, it's weaker. It also creates a bend in the fat chain. And the same way you would have a hanger, and as soon as you bend that hanger, on that bent spot, it's weaker. It's still strong, but it's weaker in that one place. So the monounsaturated fat is pretty sturdy. Not as sturdy as saturated fat, but it's pretty sturdy. Now, come into the third kind of fat called polyunsaturated fat, and that means that at two or more places along that carbon chain, you have double bonds. So now it's also a bulkier fat because you've created more elbows, if you will, and it's also more fragile. 
there's a kink in the molecule at that point, and that causes a melting effect. That melting effect has a lot to do with how we use these different kinds of fats when we prepare food. Most saturated fats, because they're straight and strong, stay solid at room temperature. Unsaturated fats, because they're more fragile, are liquid at room temperature. So olive oil and is monounsaturated. Corn oil is polyunsaturated, many, many double bonds. And because of all those kinks, those fatty acids can't line up and crystallize very easily. If you put corn oil in the fridge, it'll still be liquid, right? If you put olive oil, it's monounsaturated, just a little bit of a kink. It's liquid on the counter by the oven. It's slightly solider, a little thicker in the refrigerator, but it really won't solidify like butter will and lard, right? Butter and lard have more saturated fatty acids, straight chain, and they are hard at room temperature. Keep in mind as we're talking about this that referring to corn oil as a polyunsaturated fat or olive oil as a monounsaturated fat or butter as a saturated fat is a kind of shorthand. All fats we can eat are a combination of all three, but we tend to refer to the whole substance by the one that's most prominent. Of the fatty acids that make up corn oil, for instance, 59% are polyunsaturated, 24% are monounsaturated, and 13% are saturated. Now, we've all heard, from one source or another, that saturated fats are bad for you, specifically because they cause heart disease. That's often presented as a settled fact. But it turns out it may not be so simple. To understand why, we have to take a step backwards to one of those other kinds of fats, other than triglycerides, that we said are part of the package when we eat. In this case, cholesterol. And if there's a term that has been used more negatively in food packaging and diet books than high cholesterol, I don't know what it is. But what actually is cholesterol? It's a fat, and it's in a ringed structure. There are five rings all stuck together. So it's not a triglyceride with three arms coming off a a backbone. It's a circular structure, five rings um, all together. You can kind of think of them like the Olympic rings. It looks a little bit like that. And it's a structure of membranes, and we receive no energy from cholesterol. We don't burn it at all. It serves in the membranes of cells, and it has a water-loving end and a fat-loving end. (laughs) Um, And the water-loving end sticks outside the cell in the water environment of the body, and the fat-loving end sticks into the membrane. Remember in the last episode when we were talking about how moving triglycerides around the body in order to burn them is a slow and tedious process, because they constantly have to be taken apart and put back together in order to allow them to pass through cell membranes? Well, those membranes are everywhere in your body. And among other things, they perform really important work of keeping the watery parts of your body separated from the oily parts. Because, as we talked about, oil and water don't mix, and throwing them together willy-nilly would make disastrous chemical reactions happen all throughout your body. And also using fat layers to keep different watery sections that need to stay separate, separate. To separate the water part of the cell, the outside, from the inside water part, right? There's a bilayer, two lipid membranes. It allows the intracellular water environment where your mitochondria and all of your organelles are to be separated from the other cells and the outside, the extracellular space. 
Well, those other two fats, cholesterol and phospholipids, are what those membranes are made out of. And those membranes are really what gives our whole body shape and structure. And we're constantly building new ones, because a natural function of being alive is that older or malfunctioning cells die and are disposed of, and new ones are built all the time to take their place. Cholesterol is a crucial raw material in tons of other things in the body, too. And that's one reason why it's particularly important that pregnant women get enough of it, because they need enough to maintain their own bodies and provide the materials for the body that's developing inside them as well. It's a precursor to hormones like testosterone and, um, and estrogen and hormones of the adrenal gland. So cholesterol is absolutely vital. Without cholesterol, there's no us. Cholesterol is so important to so many different bodily functions that we actually generally need more of it than is present in the food we eat. And we manufacture it in our cells to make up the difference. There's a control system based in the liver that shuts on or off this manufacturing function based on how much cholesterol is already floating around in the blood. The liver has receptors on it, which are a bit like uh, baseball gloves facing out into the blood. And when the cholesterol particle that's in the blood binds to this baseball glove and gets taken into the liver, the liver can sense that there's cholesterol in the body and it doesn't make more. So far, so good. A problem comes, though, because sometimes that control system doesn't work the way it's supposed to. If you have a defective receptor, many, many people do, the receptor is sitting on the liver facing the blood, and the ball can't bind, the LDL cholesterol particle can't bind to that baseball glove, and so the receptor is sitting there, and the liver thinks there's no cholesterol in the blood because there's no binding. And so it makes more and more and more cholesterol. It's blind to the amount of cholesterol in the blood. This is especially problematic because we can't burn cholesterol for energy like we can with triglycerides. So we can't burn off the excess. So you can get rid of cholesterol. Um, the liver can, you know, secrete it out, out of the body. That's the only way. It can't be burned. So to get rid of it, you have to quit making it and then also release it through the bile and to go out through the intestine and the colon. And the liver isn't going to do that when it thinks there isn't enough in the system. So, excess cholesterol in the blood, or serum cholesterol, stays in the blood because there's nowhere for it to go. Enough extra serum cholesterol that's not headed in the right direction, which is to say either off to do some useful work in a cell or back to the liver to head out of the body, and it starts building up as a kind of plaque on the walls of your blood vessels. These are the famous clogged arteries, and there's no question that they are bad news. They lead directly to high blood pressure and then to heart attacks and strokes. Now, Dr. Parks just mentioned LDL cholesterol, which stands for low-density lipoprotein. That's the form cholesterol takes when it's headed out into the bloodstream. And it's what people are talking about when they talk about bad cholesterol. It's not bad in and of itself, but finding a lot of it in the blood means that it's not going anywhere. The cells around your body aren't taking it in because there's more of it around than they need. Ideally, the, the low-density lipoprotein circulates through the blood. It gets taken into cells. And what happens is the cell has a doorbell. And the cholesterol, the LDL, comes to the cell door, rings the doorbell, and the cell opens the door and says, Hi, I've been waiting for you. And in it goes. But if there's too much cholesterol already in the cell, or it's enough, and there's still a lot outside, 
the, the cell won't let the doorbell work. So if the liver is continuing to send out signals that we should produce more cholesterol when there's already more of it in the blood than the cells can use, that's a clear sign that this sensor in the liver is not functioning correctly. The, the most simple way to think about it is that the bad cholesterol is coming from the liver going out to the body um, for body needs, right? So your liver, some people's livers overproduce it and, and then it's high um, and that's why it's bad. The good cholesterol, HDL, and we always tell students H as in happy, is thought to take cholesterol from the periphery, from the artery wall, back to the liver where it can go out in bile and out in the poop. Having a lot of that HDL, or high-density lipoprotein, in your blood is a sign, or to use the technical term, a biomarker, that your liver's cholesterol sensor is functioning properly and everything is working the way it should. It's worth noticing that none of this has much to do with actually eating cholesterol. There just isn't enough of it in food for eating to cause it to build up in your arteries. It's all about the liver malfunctioning and causing us to make too much. Now, if any of you are lawyers, or at least law and order fans like me, you might also have noticed that this biomarker, in fact, biomarkers in general, are what you might call circumstantial evidence. You're not actually looking at the liver's cholesterol sensor to see if it's malfunctioning, or at the arteries to see if they're hardening. You're looking at a blood sample and making an educated guess that those things are happening because there's a lot of LDL cholesterol floating around. This kind of reliance on circumstantial evidence happens all the time in science and in medicine especially, because you often can't look at something directly. There's all kinds of reasons why you can't determine the health of microscopic sensors on someone's liver by cutting their bellies open and looking. But that indirectness can sometimes lead science down some fuzzy paths. We're going to see that in the story of the search for why the liver sometimes malfunctions in this way. A story that will climax with the curious case of trans fat. To start with, sometimes that malfunctioning liver sensor is genetic. And that's a clear and simple problem. Your mom had a bad liver, you have a bad liver, and we move on to treatment. Sometimes, though, it isn't genetic. You start off with a perfectly fine liver, and something turns that sensor off. A lot of the theorizing as to what causes that malfunction have been based around data from studies that collect a particular kind of that circumstantial evidence, a kind called epidemiological evidence. What that means is studies that notice two different conditions happening together in the same groups of people. The most famous of these studies in regard to diet is called the Seven Countries Study. It started in the 1950s and is still going on today, looking at trends in the health of middle-aged men in the United States, Europe, and Japan. What that study and many others have found is that there's a strong correlation between several serious diseases diabetes and heart disease among them, and obesity. There's such a strong correlation that today obesity and these diseases are often lumped together into a single condition called metabolic syndrome. There's even increasing evidence that some of the aspects of this metabolic syndrome are certain kinds of cancer. I explored that in depth in a previous episode of the Science in the City podcast called Unraveling the Obesity Cancer Connection. Well. This cholesterol sensor malfunction seems to be a branch of metabolic syndrome also. 
There are a lot of studies that show correlation between being obese and developing this problem. And there was a lot of further theorizing done to try to narrow it down even more. Is there a specific dietary trigger for this cholesterol management disease? Well, many researchers studying the data available from these epidemiological studies came to the conclusion that a strong correlation could be drawn between this cholesterol disease and consumption of a particular nutrient, triglycerides. Even more specifically, our friend saturated fat. So the more saturated fat we eat as human beings, um, we've seen uh, epidemiological studies that say the more saturated fat in the diet of populations, the higher their LDL cholesterol. Now, this analysis presents a serious problem for a large segment of the population, a segment of which I am absolutely a member, those of us who like eating delicious things. Because there are culinary qualities of saturated fat that cannot be matched by unsaturated fats. Saturated fat has just wonderful physical properties in terms of its, its boiling temperature and the, the, the feel that it gives to foods. Pie crust is a perfect example, right? If you've ever had a pie crust made with lard versus a pie crust made with corn oil, the one with lard, crispier, has a, has a better uh, crustiness to it. It's the physical properties about fat that we love. The mouthfeel, it's the flavors that they carry in meat, it's the, the layering in biscuits and pies, right? And those, those come from this mixture of saturated fat. A solution presented itself in the form of a food product that had been around for a while but was never particularly popular, margarine. Now, there have been different forms of margarine around since the early 1800s, and the idea behind them was to make something that tasted more or less like butter, but was less expensive to make and transport. The problem with dairy products, like butter, particularly before refrigeration, was that they couldn't be transported very far from the cow that produced the milk they were made from without going rancid. Someone discovered, though, that certain kinds of tropical oils, particularly palm oil, could be whipped into a substance that didn't really look like butter, but kind of tasted like it, and would transport just fine without going bad. We know now that's because palm oil also contains a lot of saturated fat. They called the stuff oleomargarine, from Greek words meaning pearls of oil. Now, margarine was never particularly popular, because it was always seen as a low-cost substitute for people who couldn't afford real butter. So it always had kind of an air of poverty around it. And while it tasted a bit like butter and had a similar texture and so forth, it didn't really taste like butter. It didn't have the same luscious creaminess that we all love so much. It also didn't really look like butter, particularly the color. Rather than yellow, it was kind of a pearly white, like lard. And there were laws in many countries, including the United States, against dyeing margarine yellow so that it wouldn't ever be confused with real butter. Fast forward to the early 20th century, and there was discovered a new, even less expensive way to make margarine. By taking unsaturated oils like corn oil and soybean oil and hydrogenating them. Which is to say, adding extra hydrogens to make up for the missing ones that prevent the fatty acids involved from being saturated in the first place. This produces another kind of fatty acid that are technically unsaturated, but kind of behave like saturated fats. We call them trans fat. So you have um, 
naturally found in all plants and animals fats, some saturated fats, some monounsaturated fat, some polyunsaturated fat. And basically, the mono and the polyunsaturated fat are reasonably fluid. These fluid fats, as, as we talked about a moment ago, are more fragile because of those double bonds. So the industry will hydrogenate those liquid fluid fats and cause them to become very, very firm as though they were all saturated fat. So it's fake saturated fat. You're, you got it. Converted. You're, you're, making, you're making an unsaturated fat behave as if it were a saturated fat. Exactly. Now, there is a tiny amount of trans fat that occurs naturally. For instance, a very small percentage of the fat of ruminant animals, like cows and sheep, is naturally trans fat. But this new synthetic fat made by hydrogenating oil was mostly, or even all, trans fat. And that's something that had never occurred in nature. So the food industry figured out a way to make straight-chain unsaturates. They have, they have a double bond, but they're not kinked anymore. They're straight. So, a few decades later, when the first studies came out linking saturated fat with high serum cholesterol, hardened arteries, and heart disease, the food industry was ready. It seemed like a perfect industry solution to a public health crisis. By weaning Americans off of saturated fat and onto trans fat, we could prevent heart attacks and strokes, and at the same time make a lot of money because margarine was still much less expensive to produce and ship and store than butter. By the mid-1960s, all of the laws against dyeing margarine to look like butter were off the books, and we were off to the races. Soon, there were trans fat substitutes for just about everything we used to use animal fat for. Shortening instead of lard, non-dairy coffee creamer, and imitation American cheese. The problem is, though, that it turns out that however bad saturated fat might be for you, trans fat is at the very least just as bad, and very possibly much worse. So it turns out that that kink <laughs> in an unsaturated fat that makes it liquid, which isn't really the best property for a pie crust, is also has health benefits to it. And so even if it's unsaturated, but if it's straight, like a trans, it doesn't have those same health benefits. There are even some researchers now who are saying that the analysis of those original epidemiological studies were seriously skewed because no one was accounting for the health dangers of trans fat. Remember, these massive studies were started right after World War II, during which there was a big uptick in the amount of hydrogenated oil margarine consumed for economic reasons, because it could be shipped to soldiers over long distances, and because the victims of the war often didn't have access to fresh dairy. The studies continued all through that huge and successful marketing push to switch people over to trans fat products for health reasons. And so maybe, and there are definitely scientists who would disagree with this, but maybe trans fat was the real culprit all along. Here's Ms. Nelson again, talking a bit about some of the work of Walter Willett, who is currently the chairman of the School of Public Health at Harvard. Curiously, Walter Willett um, made a case for some of the studies that we have really based a lot of our recommendations on that are sort of the old classics, like the seven countries study, uh, where if you plotted saturated fat and high cholesterol, you saw a very dramatic, very convincing relationship, linear. And he says if you take out 
the saturated fat that's natural saturated fat, like the fat, saturated fat butyric acid that's in your butter and cream, and the saturated fat that's your stearic acid that's in your beef, and so on, and you just leave the trans fat on your, in your graph, you will see that that has a much stronger connection to high cholesterol and subsequent, the sequelae of that, the higher cardiovascular disease. So the epidemiology of trans fat and its being a nasty body unfriendly substance is very strong. Now, don't get me wrong. While the epidemiological evidence against saturated fat may not be as strong as it once was, it's still plenty strong to be concerning. So I know in, um, in Scotland, there, in the uh, 1980s, huge federally supported campaigns to get people to eat less butter and more oil and less meat fat, um, smaller portions of meat. And it had a dramatic change in their, their national statistics on heart disease. So it isn't as though butter is innocent, but it's definitely better than margarine. But even margarine's okay if you're eating the kind with the least amount or no hydrogenation and you're having it, you know, in a reasonable way. So my message would be, enjoy real butter. It's a real food. We have thousands of generations of people eating butter. And I wouldn't say that we have anybody that's going to the grave early because they ate butter. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Elizabeth Parks and Maudine Nelson. This podcast was a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us on the web at scienceandthecity.org and nyas.org slash nutrition. And also, please feel free to share your thoughts with us about this podcast or any Science and the City program by email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.